1 Peter 2, from 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do, who do not believe, the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Destined for you. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks, Cora. Uh, keep that passage open. Uh, if you've got a Bible or you've got some uh, device that has a Bible on it, it'd be great to follow with me. This is a slippery Bible. I'm going to have to stick it on the side here. Every time I push it up, it just goes ooh, back down again. That's all right. All good. Um, why don't we pray? And then we can... Oh, yeah, even better. Thank you. Great. Let's pray, and then we'll have a look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. That it's not just words on a page written long ago by, by people largely forgotten, but it's, it's the living word. It is your word given to us, um, and that by your spirit, you speak to us today through your word. And so give us ears to hear, Lord, we pray, eyes to see the glories um, of the gospel and hearts that will believe in Jesus Christ, our only, our only hope in this world. And we pray that you may bless us now in our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why do you come to church? Uh, for some people, well, it wasn't much of a choice. You were just born into the church. Your family has always come to the church. It's just a bit of a family tradition. It's the thing you always do. On your Sunday mornings, you get up, you go to church. That's why you come. Uh, for others... Maybe it's about that spiritual boost that you're looking for. You know, you spent this whole week slogging away in the, in the world, and it's exhausting and frustrating, and then you get here, and it's like, ah, I can get this boost to keep on going for the rest of the week. Uh, or maybe for you it's about relationships. Uh, it's the great times together, the shared meals, and I know there's a lot of really great shared meals here, and, uh, and shared memories, and, and it's, it's just, you just love hanging around with these people, and more importantly, they love hanging around with you. And, and maybe that's what church is about. That's why you come. Or, or maybe it's the teaching. It's, uh, it's all those ministries that are on offer for the kids uh, and for uh, various ages and stages, and you just feel like, you know, the teaching is what, what draws you here. So why do you come to church? Here in 1 Peter, we're, not, we're told not only the why, but also the what that drives the why. We're told what church is. 
which should motivate the reason why we come. And, and, and that's really important for us. We really need to understand not only why we come to church, but actually what the church is. Because if we don't get that right, then we're always going to be on shaky ground. And we're always going to have reasons for not coming to church. And it just takes a little bit of pressure. A little pressure from our family, a little pressure from our jobs or our studies, a little pressure from culture and society. Actually, a lot of pressure at the moment. And, and before we know it, we're thinking, well, why should I come to church? And we stop coming. Last year in Melbourne, uh, you may know the story was in the news. The Essendon Football Club, Club hired Andrew Thorburn to be their new CEO. And barely 24 hours later, he was fired. Why? Because the media unearthed that he was an active member of a Bible-believing church that held to a biblical view of marriage and sex. That is, that sex is for marriage only, and that marriage is for one man and one woman only. And when that came to light, well, Essendon Football Club basically issued him an ultimatum. They said, you either choose us or you choose your church. You can't have both. And in that case, he chose the church and he was fired. Uh, now, we could have said to him, well, you know, why did you take the church so seriously? Surely you could have just, you know, gone to a, a, a less um, uh, offensive church, maybe something a little more culturally acceptable with rainbow flags on their windows. Maybe you could have just done church online and nobody needs to know what church you are at. Maybe you could have just step down from being actively involved in the church and just be kind of an adherent, just hanging around on the sides, but not really involved. And then, and then, you know, the heat would be off and you could do your thing. But he stood firm and he lost his job. And I'm sure that there'll be more people who will experience the same. So how do we stand firm and stick to our convictions? Well, the book of 1 Peter really is written in that context to help us. As you go all the way to chapter 5 and verse 12, Peter very helpfully tells us why he wrote this letter. And, uh, and verse 12 in chapter 5, he says, By Silvanus, a, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting, that is, strongly encouraging you, and declaring that this is the true grace of God, Stand firm in it. He wants them to know what the true grace of God is so that they would stand firm in it. And they had to, to know this and they had to, they, they, this was something they really needed because in, in Peter's day, this church or the churches that he was writing to were under massive pressure, massive pressure from their society. They were being marginalized. They were being alienated. They were experiencing slander, opposition. You, as you read the book, you, you'll, you'll see that popping up all the time. They might not have been experiencing the kind of persecution that the early church experienced later that century, that, but that was still coming. But Peter writes to them, and he writes to us as well, to, to encourage us to stand firm in the true grace of God. And here in chapter 2, in that little section that Cora read for us, one of the key ways we will stand firm uh, is by understanding what it means to be a part of the church of God, what it is and what it is for. 
And when we understand that, when you understand your part in that, when you understand what it means to be a part of a church, well, that will help you to stand firm in the true grace of God. And so that's what I want to take a quicker and closer look at this morning, those two things. Firstly, the church's identity, what it is, and secondly, the church's purpose, what it is for. So let's have a look, firstly, the church's identity. And we come back now to chapter 2 and verse 4. And before we, we, we dig in there, you would have noticed that there is a lot of visual metaphors that Peter is using here to describe the church. And most of them are connected to the, the picture of the Old Testament temple. So it's important for us to just spend a little bit of time camping there and just figuring out what was the Old Testament temple, because it'll help us understand what Peter's trying to tell us about the church. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details. You can read it for yourself. But if you were to read the early chapters of 1 Kings, uh, you'll discover that that's where Solomon, the new king, builds the temple in Jerusalem. And he builds it according to God's instructions that were given to them. And, and there you can see that at that temple, there were special people called priests set apart by God to be his representatives uh, to represent God to the people and the people to God. And at the temple, of course, repented Israelites would come. They would bring a sacrifice, normally an animal. And the priest would take that sacrifice and offer that sacrifice on their behalf to God. And it symbolized the punishment of death that their sins deserved, being moved onto a substitute in their place. That's how the people of God were able to to have a relationship with God through a sacrificial substitute. And together the people and the priests represented God to the world. Um, it's, it's interesting that Israel was, was geographically in a place at that time that was really on the road where a lot of people back and forth going around on trade routes. And so, and so they, people just kept bumping into Israel all the time and seeing how this God was working in their lives and how he ruled over the world. But as you go on reading 1 Kings and as you go into 2 Kings, you'll discover that the, the people of God weren't great at doing what they were meant to do. You realize that they didn't follow God with all their hearts, that the temple and the priests became corrupted. And despite God's warnings through the, the prophets that he sent to them, telling them again and again and again that if they didn't clean up their act, that judgment would come. Even despite all of that, they ignored God's warnings. And eventually, uh, in the end, God brought judgment, his promised judgment on his people. And what happened then was that the people were taken away into exile to Babylon. And the city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And, and it was crushing to the people of Israel. How are they going to relate to God? How are they going to have their sins forgiven? How are they going to have a, a sacrifice brought? Because there's no temple anymore. But through that time, while they were in exile, the prophets spoke of a new temple to come. They spoke of how God would restore his people to himself again, and that, that they would build a new temple. And unlike the old temple, this one would be laid by God himself and it would last forever. 
That's how Isaiah put it in his prophecy, which is actually quoted here for us in this little section in, in 1 Peter 2, where uh, you'll see in verse 6, he says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, that is, that is the heavenly Jerusalem, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now that last line is added in by Peter. But here is the, the prophecy that Isaiah gave, that God himself will lay the foundation stone of a new temple, a temple that will last forever. But if you know the story and how it keeps on going, when the people return back to the land, when they, were, when they rebuilt the temple again, well, it didn't quite live up to what the prophets predicted it would be. It was a little bit of a, a disappointment, really. Uh, it, it wasn't a building even as impressive as Solomon's temple. But the reason for that is because the true temple was still coming. And the surprise is that it wasn't a place, but a person. We kind of give it a hint about that, where, where God lays this, this chosen and precious cornerstone, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. But we see that particularly in, in the Gospels, when Jesus came. In John chapter 2, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and I will build it up again in three days. And all the people said to, to, were confused, and they said, what? It took 46 years to build this temple, and he's going to break it down and build it up in three days? That's impossible. But then as John goes on to say in the next verses, uh, Jesus wasn't speaking about the physical temple. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And when he rose again from the dead on the third day, finally the disciples understood what he meant. But what Jesus was doing was drawing a connection between the temple and himself. That Jesus is the true temple that God has established, the chosen one. The one to whom the temple was always pointing to. The one in whom we can have a real living relationship with God. The one who sacrificed himself for our sins on his, in his body uh, on the cross. And, and, and that's what we remember as we share the Lord's Supper each time we gather, that it points us to his body given, his blood shed, so that we can have forgiveness, that we can be right with God, that we can enter into relationship with God, which is what the temple was always meant to be about. Jesus is the true temple, which is why here in uh, chapter 2 of uh, 1 Peter and verse 4, he talks about Jesus being the living stone. Because he is the cornerstone of a new living temple. He is the one who is chosen and precious in God's sight. And he's been set in place by God. And it's through him, as we know, that we receive forgiveness of sin, a new and living relationship with God. And when we come to him, what does Peter say? But that we then become part of this new temple. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a new kind of temple. And the amazing thing is that it, that is open for any of us to be a part of. How do we come to be in this new temple? How do we get in? Well, verse 6 tells us, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. 
That's all you need to do. All you need to do is believe in Jesus. Believe that he is the one who can put you in a right relationship with God. Believe that, that it is his death on the cross for your sins that pays the penalty. To believe that, that there is no other temple or priest or spiritual guru or self-help expert who can save you. Only Jesus can. Because he's the only one who can truly deal with your guilt and your sin and your fear of death. And I'm sure many of us here can testify to that today. All you need to do is believe in him. In fact, that's the only way to be right with God. To everyone who hears that, that's, that's either the most wonderful news or it's the most offensive news you've ever heard. But the fact is, there's just no middle ground. You either believe or you reject him. And that's what Peter goes on to say. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become this cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. See, either Jesus is the cornerstone or he is nothing. Jesus is not willing to be a brick in our little building. No, we need to be a a living stone in his building, is in his temple. And so we need to make a choice. C.S. Lewis famously said uh, that you must make a choice about this Jesus. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and worship him and call him Lord and God. But let's not come, he says, with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. You see, the fact is we have to make a choice about Jesus. Those who rejected Jesus and had him put to death, God raised him from the dead again, and he has become the cornerstone. That's the pattern. And as it was for Jesus, the living stone, so it is the pattern for us, the living stones, being built into the spiritual house. Uh, and, and so it should come as no surprise to you. If people reject Jesus today, if people use Jesus as a swear word, if people ignore Jesus, well, how much more will they do the same for the church? I mean, Jesus is bad enough, but some people begrudgingly accept that Jesus maybe was a good teacher, even though as C.S. Lewis says, that's not open to us. Yet when it comes to the church, well, when, when general society talks about the church, what do they think about the church? It's generally not very good. You know, it's just we, we're out for people's money or um, and we just do horrible things to, to vulnerable people. Um, it, it's a place you can't trust uh, that, that they just spiritually abusing you and and so that the church itself is rejected in the world but even as the world tries to put the church to death it won't work it really won't work any in any any more than it worked with jesus gk chesterton said over the ages christendom has experienced a series of revolutions and and each one, and in each one christianity has died but each time it dies it rises again why because it has a god who knows the way out of the grave that's what the church is 
like the Lord Jesus Christ. We are rejected in this world, but chosen by God, precious in His sight. A spiritual building, not made up of bricks and mortar, but of people who have put their trust in Jesus, who are the living stones that make up this building. And so, because that is what the church is, stand firm in it. It's not just a place, a shelter we meet uh, as a random bunch of people, and then we head off into the week and forget about things. No, there is something spiritual going on when we are here, when we are gathered. And on that final day of judgment, those who believe in Him and are part of God's building project, the church, they will be honored, as Peter puts it. Whereas those who have rejected Him and turned their back on Him and built their lives and built their own little building projects on their own little foundations will be exposed and put to shame. That's what the church is. Well, if that is the case, then what is it for? And for that, we need to go back again to verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Why? And here it comes. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And you see that, again, we're going back to this Old Testament image. He has the picture of, of, the picture changes really from living stones now to spiritual priests. And, and as you recall, priests were set apart by God in the temple to represent God to the people and the people to God. But notice that this is not just something special now for sp special people. This is what every Christian is. All of us who come to Jesus, who are being built into the spiritual house, are a holy priesthood. We are all priests. It's not just some special holy group of people who wear strange-looking clothes and wave smoking handbags about to bring us into the presence of God. Or, on the other hand, is it, is it special-looking people and wearing really trendy clothes, uh, leading the worship up front with the smoke machines going, that lead us into the, into the presence of God. No, no, we are all priests if we believe in Jesus and he is our king. And like all priests, we offer sacrifices to God. We, uh, but, but of course, the question is, what are these sacrifices? Because they cannot be sacrifices for sin. Because as we know, Jesus is the one who has offered himself the perfect and sufficient and ultimate sacrifice for sin as our great high priest, as the book of Hebrews puts, uh, makes it out to be. And so because he has done that once for all sacrifice, there is no need for sacrifice anymore. And because his sacrifice brings us into the presence of God permanently forever, we don't need somebody else to do that work for us. We're already there. So what are the spiritual sacrifices then that, that Peter has in mind here when he talks about that in verse 5. Well, to help us, we should skip a little bit ahead where he returns to the picture again in verse 9, where he, he, he talks about what we are and what we've been uh, set apart to do. So what are we? You are, verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, there's the word again, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, those are the words 
that God gave to his people in Exodus 20, when he rescued them out of slavery, out of Egypt, when he brought them to Mount Sinai, when he gave them his law, and when he set his tabernacle amongst them. This was basically a portable version of the temple, a tent version of the temple, where, where God's presence was and where, where the priests could interact uh, with uh, God and the people. Um, and so that, that was because they were nomadic, traveling through the land. They needed a, a portable temple. But once, once they were established in the land, of course, they built the temple. So why were they chosen by God? Why, why have we been chosen by God? Why have we been set apart? Why are we a royal priesthood and a chosen race? Well, he goes on to say in the second half of verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, in the Old Testament, what is interesting is that there were two kinds of sacrifices that were offered at the temple. The one was the sacrifice for sin, which was an animal sacrifice, which we've already spoken about, which has already been fulfilled in Jesus in his death on the cross. But there was a second kind of sacrifice that people could bring that the, the priests would offer on their behalf, and that was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It was offered not because they were sorry for their sin. Of course they were sorry for their sin. But it was offered out of gratitude to God for all that he's given them. And, and especially because they had forgiveness in him. And so it was a way of them expressing their love for God by giving a, a, a sacrifice. And those were different kinds of sacrifices. It was not just animals, but there was grain. There were other ways that they could do that. Uh, and, and that's the kind of sacrifice I think that Peter has in mind when he talks about spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God is that we might proclaim his excellencies, that we would, would give thanks to him and, and shine that out, declare to God and to declare to one another just how excellent God really is. And we do that as we gather. That's part of the purpose of why we are here as a church. We are here for the glory of God as we talk about and sing about and pray about God's excellencies. And as we remind ourselves that once we were without mercy, but now we have been given mercy through Jesus. And as we go out from this place, full of thankfulness and praise, shining out the gospel into this dark and depressed and hopeless world. And as Peter will go on to say, we won't look at it now, but in verse 11 and 12, well, well the world will think we're strange. They'll think we're weird. And, and we won't fit into the world because we are light in the darkness. But that's who we are. That's why we meet. We gather to proclaim his excellencies, to tell one another of his goodness and his grace, that we might shine in this world. In a sense, the temple that we are has become the tabernacle again. Now we, we, we're getting out there into the world, portable and moving around. And, uh, and we shine the gospel wherever we go. If anything, we, we, we can't say that the church is just something incidental that kind of just happened because uh, God wasn't looking and then, oh, there's a church. I better kind of build things around that. No, this was always God's plan from the beginning that he would gather a people for himself, for his praise, that would declare his excellencies to this world. The church is central to everything that God is doing in this world. And we are called to be a part of the church. 
because this is how we will stand firm in his grace. What is the church? It is a spiritual house. We are living stones built up in this house to declare the excellencies and praises of God. The world may reject us. On outward appearance, we may be a bit of a rough bunch who don't always get things right. But the reality is we are chosen and precious in God's sight. He's brought us together. He's handpicked every single one of us to be a part of this building. And, and so take heart. The church is how God is working in this world. Don't give up on it. Kevin DeYoung and, and Ted Cluck uh, came out with a book a couple of years ago called Why We Love the Church. And they say these words towards the end of the book. They say, go to church. Worship there in spirit and truth. Be patient with your leaders. Rejoice when the gospel is faithfully preached. Bear with those who hurt you. Give people the benefit of the doubt. When you're there, sing like you mean it. Say hi to the teenager no one notices. Welcome the blue hairs and the nose ringed. Volunteer for the nursery once in a while. I know that's a big ask, but there we go. Be thankful someone vacuumed the carpet. Enjoy the Sundays that click for you and work extra hard on the Sundays that don't. And do not despise the day of small things, as Zechariah 4 puts it. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church, that it is your idea, that it is built on the foundation and cornerstone of Jesus Christ, that we get to be built into this spiritual house, that we can offer praise and thanksgiving to you, that we can declare your excellencies in this world, that we can tell others of how you brought us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And as we encourage one another together as your people, uh, as we look forward to being joined together with all your people across this world, we pray, Lord, that you may enable us to stand firm in your grace, that we may go out into this world proclaiming your excellencies, living such good lives that, that we may confuse those around us, and yet they will see our good deeds and glorify you on the day you come back. And so please work in us, we pray. Please join us more and more closely together. Please give us hearts that, that love the church and to, um, to serve as we may glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.